friends, welcome back to the Masterclass series on Everybody Speaks Music, and today I'll be kicking off a new format called 10 Questions With, where you'll get to hear answers from a number of teachers in my school and in our local community here in Vancouver. And I'm going to kick things off by answering these questions that I wrote to my team and want to get some of their feedback on various instruments, struggles, and some of the victories they've had. And I hope that you hear something in the episodes that resonates with you. And without further ado, let's get started. Question number one, what's something most people think about learning or performing music that you disagree with? Number one at the top of that list is the myth of talent. We all come at it with different levels of experience and it's really hard to separate that from the predisposition to musicality as we might call it. So if we have a kid who is raised in a musical house, they might have a natural sense of rhythm, but I don't consider that a talent. It's a skill that was developed by being around musical parents or musical caregivers, and as they get a little bit better, people start praising them, they do it more, and I think there's a cause and effect here. Now, so many people I've talked to disagree with this one statement. In fact, it seems to be the most universally contested thought out there that musicians who are great must have some talent, and I think I'll die fighting on this hill. To me, it's so important to put it out into the world that that is absolutely untrue. Yes, there are attributes and experience levels that can factor into why one musician appears to be getting it faster or has an advantage over the next, but that's not going to help anyone. Thinking that you yourself possess an innate talent, it's not going to help you get any better. You've got to put the time in and you have to practice what you love. Time and time again, we'll see that the best musicians also happen to be the ones that do it the most and unless they're hell-bent on self-destructive practice habits they're probably enjoying the time they put in they're getting a lot out of it therefore they want to do it a lot and yes they're going to get better at it anyone out there listening who disagrees with my assertion on talent i welcome you to reach out and talk to me personally about your situation i'd be happy to work with someone out there listening that thinks they are the least musical person on the planet Perhaps they have a problem with rhythm, melody, someone told them they can't sing in tune, tone deaf. You've heard it all before on the show. We've we've talked about this type of thing a lot. So please reach out if you think you are the least musical person in your crew, and I'll be happy to work with you and show you that that's not true and there are ways forward. Moving on to question number two. What is something you know now about learning music that could have saved you countless hours of frustration when you first started? Something I've learned in the last decade is that the act of daily practice is the reward and to not attach my dopamine spike to the outcome, but to the process. So instead of practicing thinking, hey, this is going to make me better, or I'm going to play that show better, or I'm going to write a better song, or I'm going to be faster or have more skills to just double down on the act of practice itself. And that's helped me so much. I can't recall in the last decade where I've dreaded practicing And that used to be a regular occurrence. Moving on to question three. Was there ever a significant moment of doubt that threatened to end your music career? And please describe how you overcame it. Absolutely. In my early 20s, I was ready to pack it in. And it kind of follows up to the previous answer I just gave. I was so outcome attached that my lack of success was a clear sign I should just give it up. This is a sentiment that's reinforced by society, by the culture around us. Most people that 
try to do something at a young age and don't succeed by the time they're in their early 20s, give it up. And they move on to a more dependable day job and they back off their dream. So in my case, I was convinced that there was no point going forward because I wasn't able to earn a sustainable living by playing my guitar. And I actually quit. I went and applied at a local wood mill and I was, that's it. I was gonna just do a normal job and stop worrying about music. What brought me back was nothing short of a gift of an opportunity. I had handed my resume in, I had resigned from my teaching position, and I was fully in motion to not be a musician anymore. And the phone rang. It was an opportunity to come teach guitar in a different city, in a different community. It was the fresh start that I needed, and it was a renewal of sorts. I was really excited about the opportunity to meet new people, and give it a try. I thought, what are the odds that the day I apply at a mill, the phone rings and I'm given this glorious opportunity. So I trusted my heart and my gut and I followed it. And it was a good decision. It wasn't an easy route, but it gave me a valuable and fresh perspective and a chance to start over. Question number four, please share a memory of a lesson that changed your life and how it impacted the musician you are today. There were many lessons I received along the way that had an impact on me, but the one that truly changed my life was a YouTube video by Steve Vai called How to Be Successful. It's seven minutes and 20 seconds of glorious inspiration, and I just haven't been the same since. Rather than paraphrase Steve Vai, go search YouTube, Steve Vai, How to Be Successful. It's an interview with him sitting on a stage at a guitar center in America with this beautiful music playing in the background with a smile on his face and you'll know everything's all right he just reminds us of the most important parts of being a musician and why we're doing it in the first place question number five after all these years how do you keep your practice sessions fresh fun and productive for me it's a mixture of a concept i call eat the dessert first also by playing for relaxation and stress reduction and by revisiting songs I loved when I was a kid and by leaning on structured routines that I know are going to warm me up or give me dependable, measurable results. So it's those four key areas that I lean on heavily. And and like I said, it's a mixture. It's not one thing over the other. I trust my instinct every day to pick the item that best gets me off the ground and moving in a positive direction. That could be anything from meditating on an improvisational mood I'm in or practicing a series of scales and arpeggios that I've done for 20 years, going back and playing the very first Metallica song I learned, that always puts a smile on my face. Also just playing for the sheer sake of loving it. I find that's the number one reason I go to the guitar. It represents stress reduction, it lowers my anxiety, clears my brain out, and allows me to perform better as a husband, a father, and a business owner. Question number six. What essential warm-up or exercise do you practice daily, and can you please describe the mechanics or practical application of it for our listeners? Okay, so this one is very guitar-specific. I tend to practice my hands separately for the first few minutes, so I'll alternate between left hand, then right hand, put them both together, and I might go back and forth a few times. So likely what I'm doing on the left hand is a series of hammer-ons and pull-offs, sometimes referred to as legato or slur technique, where I'm not plucking a whole lot with the right hand, but I'm letting my left hand do most of the work. This could also be me holding complicated chord shapes, like I mentioned in the Tommy Emmanuel example from the masterclass on acoustic guitar, where you just hold a hard chord for four seconds, 
move on to another one, trying to wake the left hand or the fretting hand up. For the right hand, it would be working on open string patterns with either fingerstyle or with my guitar pick. And uh, in particular, I've been using a very complicated rhythm from a Swedish death metal band called Meshuga. It's their iconic song, Bleed, and it has this down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up pattern. And I work on it until my hand gets a little bit sore and then switch back to the left hand. And by sore, I should just mean tired, slightly fatigued, but not pushing past the point of discomfort. And then I combine the two hands with a series of synchronization exercises, often scales or arpeggios or modules I've learned that I like. A good example would be Rondo Alaturka. It's such a famous classical melody and make sure that both hands are in sync. That's a great place to, to start for anyone is just to get both hands to wake up. I imagine it would be very similar for a drummer who has to wake up all four limbs. Piano player has to wake up both hands and just try to figure out where you are before you commit to anything strenuous. Number seven, what area of musicianship do you consider a strength and how did you come to develop it? So for me, the first thing that comes to mind is rhythm. I developed my rhythm by paying attention to drummers and made a commitment very early on in my guitar playing journey that I would think and practice more like a drummer than a guitar player. It seemed quite common that guitar players were struggling with their rhythm And yet all my heroes had amazing, impeccable groove. Uh, Someone like Eddie Van Halen, who gets a lot of credit for the lead playing, that cat could swing. His rhythm, his chords, the way that he laid into the beat, and the way he played with the drums was just fantastic. And it was a great resource for me. I also learned to trust my body and not my mind. So good idea is to throw out, quote, the thinking books or the practical Western-based counting systems that prevent us from feeling music and actually learn to play the rhythm before you count it. Learning to trust my gut, learning to move my body, whether it's my foot tapping, my head nodding, or just to feel the rhythm internally and not think it was the turning point for me and I've just leaned on that ever since and it's really helped me get a good, firm grasp on groove, playing in the pocket, playing with other musicians and just learning how to feel the rhythm in general. Question number eight, what area of musicianship do you consider a weakness? And can you please outline a method or program you would self-design to improve it? For me, an area of weakness is definitely improvisational harmony or the use of chords, in this case, in a jazz chord melody style context. I don't have a lot of skill here. I know so many of the chord shapes. I've played them for decades, but I don't really have them under my fingers enough to think fast or feel fast in an improvisational setting. That is an area I definitely like to work on. And the self-design method that I've come up with that I haven't really dug too deep into yet is to play all my triads and all my seventh chords in every possible inversion on every string set. I know this can get a little complicated to explain, so I won't dive too deep, but the idea here is that you take a triad, a three-toned chord, and you learn how to play it on a particular set of strings where the root note is in the bass, then the third of the chord is in the bass, and then the fifth of the chord is in the bass. Once you get the seventh chords, you get an extra tone in the chord, which gives you four total inversions or four different sets of the same chord. The idea here is that you get to a point where you can play a chord, like say G, but instead of staying statically on that one fingering, you're able to move up or down the neck through the different inversions. So if you have a little bit of time on that same chord, you can, in effect, move into another version of it, creating more variety in your sound, Also, the other part of this exercise I would do is to attach arpeggios and scales off each of the chord tones in the chords. 
I know so many listeners are getting a headache, so I'm going to move on. But if any of that appeals to you, it's a sign you want to understand the knowledge side of music and probably a good idea to book a lesson with a teacher you trust. But for so many of us, we just don't need that much knowledge or that in-depth training style there. Question number nine. What's something you find your students commonly struggle with and what solution or practice strategies would you recommend? Keeping rhythm and playing through the mistakes. This is something I observe in almost everyone, especially in a lesson where a student can be nervous. They wanna show me that they've practiced and that they're getting the material. If they make a mistake and they look up at me or they verbalize it, guaranteed they're out of time. So I try to teach my students to play through the mistakes and not address them. Uh, I use different strategies like, if you catch yourself making a mistake, instead of looking at me or talking, smile. Then you can at least address the mistake, but it's not a negative reaction. A good example of a negative reaction would be, a band is playing on stage, and a member in the band makes a mistake, and everyone else looks at them. You're sort of outing that member of the band, and the audience goes, oh, uh, it was the drummer, or it was the bass player, or the guitar player. So everyone's clearly pointing their finger at who wrecked the flow or the groove. Great bands don't do that. They hear the mistakes that the other players make, and they respond to them so well that the audience often didn't even notice it happened. Again, I would think that throwing away the thinking approach here is really important and focusing on just feeling the beats and understanding the mechanics of what your hands are doing instead of thinking about why they're doing it. So this could be memorizing a particular strum pattern and the directions of your strumming hand and how it's going down, down, up, up, down. Okay, question number 10. Are there any books, resources, or final pieces of advice you'd recommend for our listeners to help them reach their goals as a musician? Well, regular listeners of Everybody Speaks Music will recognize all of the following books because they've come up on numerous episodes. But for those of you that are new to this show or haven't heard of these books, they're absolute must-reads or must-listens. At the top of the list, Zen Guitar by Philip Toshio Sudo. It's an amazing book. It's a quick read and it gets your mindset together and reminds you also that you're supposed to be having fun and that it is a journey in so many ways that never ends. You just have to learn to enjoy the journey. Second on the list would be The Music Lesson by Victor Wooten. It's a very creatively written book that outlines some of the most important concepts of music from rhythm to harmony to melody, playing with others. And it's all told in this tale of this teacher and student relationship. And it's just a lot of fun. I highly recommend you listen to the audiobook because you'll get to hear Victor's voice and Whoever read the the character of Michael did a perfect job. These characters are coming to life in your ears. And it's so nice to hear Victor playing bass in the background. It's a, it's a really interesting book. Number three on the list would be Guitar Zero by Gary Marcus, which is a very practical tale of a 40-year-old musician who took a one-year sabbatical from being a linguistics professor. And Gary just focused on learning the guitar for eight hours a day to see if he really could do it or not because he'd never had any success And of course, Gary, a lot of people know, was diagnosed by his peer, Daniel J. Levitin, as being unmusical or amusica. I'm just misquoting here, but the idea was that Gary wanted to prove to himself that he could play music. And I found it to be one of the most inspiring and funny chronicles of somebody learning an instrument you could possibly hope for. Next on the list is a book by Jonathan Harnum called The Practice of Practice. This would be a great book for anyone that's already been playing for a while and is looking to make their daily practice more efficient and get more out of their time with their instrument. 
I think it fits perfectly in with the pre-mentioned books. And between all of those, you should be in pretty good shape. Now, if you're having a hard time with the art itself, then The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield is a must read. It's a short book, much like Zen Guitar. Every page is a chapter. And it's it's been a game changer for countless creative types, whether they're musicians or artists or comedians, authors, it doesn't matter. So if you find yourself bottled up in your day job and you want to feel a little bit more creative or you just want to try to get over that resistance and that hump of creativity, then The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield is definitely the book you want to read. And of course, keep listening to this podcast. The whole point of the podcast is to keep you inspired. So if you haven't listened to the whole show from day one, it's a great idea to just go right back to the start, episode one, where I interview Mojo, episode two, he interviews me, and so on. I think we're up to 83 or 84 episodes by the time we release this one. I'll finish up with a bonus question. This one I'm particularly interested, as is Jill. In fact, it was Jill that gave me the idea to ask this question after reading through my original list of 10. She wanted to hear a little bit more on the emotional side of what the teacher and the student are going through in the lesson. The question is phrased, how do you best support your student when strong emotions or doubts come up during their lesson? My gut instinct on this one is number one, listen, then validate, support, pivot the lesson and adjust the material if needed, and reassure my student that we're in this together and most importantly, it's supposed to be fun. Playing music is not life or death. It's really just about connecting with our own internal creativity or giving us a little bit more space to breathe, lower anxiety, or just to meet other people and share something we love, the gift of music. As a teacher, for at least the first two decades of my life, I did not do enough listening or validating when my students were complaining about the challenges they were facing. So I've really learned to, instead of saying something typical in my voice, oh, you've got this, or it's not that hard, don't worry, you'll get it. I just adjust a little bit and say, yeah, that is hard. That is a hard exercise. You're absolutely right. Or you are in a place in your life where you don't have time to do this particular drill or routine or song. Let's scale it back or let's take a break completely until you're ready to come back to it. I like to check in and make sure my students are enjoying their material. It's pretty obvious when you ask them how they respond, if they drop their head in their face and they go, yeah, I guess it's okay. I ask myself, is this really the best use of our time when we have so many infinite, beautiful roads we could walk together? Am I just going to stick into this one area because I'm stubborn and we talked about it a week ago or a month ago and I'm just going to hold the line until the student obeys or am I going to read their body language? and use my own experience with them to help guide them into a place that's gonna immediately renew them or bring them more joy and fulfillment. The music lesson might be the most fun part of their week. It might be the only time they get heard. It might be the only time they have a chance to be creative. And I don't wanna ruin it as a teacher and make it all about outcomes or following some path that we agreed upon in one lesson that actually was a bad idea to begin with. I'll take the fall for that one. It's my job to poke around as the teacher check in and make sure we're on the right track how many times have i changed my own path thousands how could i ever expect a student to stay on the same path and certainly i need to check in and find out where they are with that thank you so much for listening and if you've enjoyed the show please go to your podcast player of choice and hit a rating whether it's a one or a five star i mean if you hate these things and you're this far into the episode bring it give me that one star but hopefully you enjoy what you're hearing 
It really helps us reach more audience members and get our message out to further the cause of having fun and playing music. And thanks again for supporting the show. Hope you have a wonderful weekend or a week, wherever you are where you're listening to this. And don't forget, everybody speaks music. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share with your friends. It will really help my daddy and my Uncle Mojo. So here we're going to sing five notes in a row. One, two, three, four, five... One, two, three, four, five. Now can you count backwards? Five, four, three, two, one. Five, four, three, two, one. Very good. Now can we skip the two and skip the four? One, three, five. One, three, five. Very good. And can we do that backwards? Five, three, one. Five, three, one. Now can we make it sad? One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. Five, four, three, two, one. Five, four, three, two, one. Very good. And now we'll skip the two and the four. One, three, five. One, three, five. Five, three, one. Five, three, one. And when it's sad, we call it a flat three. Yeah. Or a minor three. Can you say minor three? Minor three. And can you say flat three? Flat three. That's right. So when it's happy, it's... One, three, five. Yeah, so when it's happy, it's called one, three, five. And when it's sad, it's one, flat, three, five. Yeah, yeah. and when it's sad, it's one, flat, three, That's right. You're doing so good. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. Five, four, three, two, one. Five, four, three, two, one. High five, buddy.